Welcome to Socrates in the City. Did you know that you were at a Socrates in the City event? Did, did you care? Be honest. You didn't care. Uh, this is an exciting evening because uh, Mr. Dick Cavett is going to be here. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I get very excited when I think about Dick. And if he weren't caught in traffic on 44th Street and 6th Avenue, I'd be in a great mood right now. I know. You're wondering, is he kidding? Is he kidding? Uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. He's, he's back here. He's right back here. I'm, I'm thrilled that, uh, that he consented to come again to Socrates in the City. He's been here a bunch of times, but uh, every time it's so awful that I know he won't come back. But he comes back again and again and again. It really is a thrill for me uh, that, uh, that you're here and that he's here. And let me say this. Tonight's a particularly special evening because of the tree lighting, don't you think? Gosh. I just, I was actually worried that none of you would get here because of the traffic. So thank you for planning ahead and taking the subway or whatever you did to get here. Thank you. Uh, and if you're late, I hate you. Um, <laughs> did you hear that this is the last year that they're going to do that? De Blasio is shutting that down. Did you hear about that? Yeah. What were his words? I wrote it down. He said, yeah, he called, he wants to put an end to the murder of these innocent giants. Those were his words. Yeah, he's shutting it all down, folks. Uh, well, in this case, I mean, he has, he has a point, uh, just not on that subject. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, anyway, look, this is a, it's a dream come true for me to interview a legend. Uh, I think of Dick as a legend along the lines of, I don't know, Johnny Appleseed, Pecos Bill, that level, that level of legend. Uh, but it's true. Uh, to, to get to talk to him, he's a TV legend. He's an icon. Um, he is certainly, for me... Um, a friend, I'm glad to, to say at this point, a friend, an idol, a friend. And I just found out, this is going to freak you out, um, he's, he's my biological father. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but he's, he, everywhere he goes, he's getting awards. And this is important. He got an award from the Abingdon Theater. There's a, a bunch of folks here from the Abingdon Theater, right? Thank you for coming. Uh, Dick starred uh, in a play, Hellman v. McCarthy, which tells the really beautiful, painful, please, please, uh, the beautiful, painful story of uh, the feud between uh, Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy. Incredible. And in, in this play, Dick played himself. Just so you understand the level of greatness and legend we're now talking about, he gets to play. He doesn't even have to do anything except pretend he's 34 years younger. You know, that's, that's, that, that was the role, basically. So he gets to play himself. And the only one I can think of uh, that I know of whoever got to play himself was like Babe Ruth, I think, in the, in the Pride of the Yankees. You remember that? He, he got to play himself. Dick is at this level. He gets to play himself. Everywhere he goes, he gets awards. And so anyway, the Abingdon Theater gave him this wonderful award. It was a wonderful uh, event. And um, for me, the highlight of it was they got someone... Uh, to sing a song, a tribute to Dick. And I thought, I wonder if we can get that woman to come here and to sing that wonderful song. And we couldn't. <laughs> we couldn't, we couldn't. And, it's, uh, and then at one point I thought, oh, I'll, I'll find someone to sing. And I rewrote the lyrics uh, rather, rather dramatically. Uh, so I had the lyrics ready to go. Uh, but we couldn't get anybody to sing it. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't even get a piano, unfortunately. And um, 
Um, I, I wish I wish we'd been able to find a piano, but I would have I would have sung it myself if we could. But then he need to get a piano player, and you know that's not going to happen. You know what I'm you know what I'm saying? It's just not going to happen. Um, but let me be honest with you: if it were to happen, uh, it would probably go something like this. Not exactly like this, but something like this. Roughly, roughly. He's talked with Groucho and Lucille Ball, with Evil Knievel and Simon Wiesenthal. He's delightful, he's the lovely. He's Dick Cavett. Thank you. He's schmoozed with Bob Hope and with Mel Torme, with William F. Buckley, and with Bob Goulet. He's delightful. He's the lovely. He's Dick Cavett. He has interviewed Ingmar Bergman and Alfred Hitchcock and David Lean. Not to mention Truman Capote and Orson Welles and Orson Bean. He had Hepburn and Abba. And Michael Caine And George McGovern And Mickey Spillane He's delightful He's the lovely He's Dick Cavett And that guy who died from the heart attack And Woody Allen and Roberta Flack He's delightful He's the lovely He's Dick Cavett you could hear Jacques Cousteau and Marcel Marceau on his show, and John and Yoko. And oh my, how he got dissed when he landed on Nixon's enemies list. So I ask you, friends, what's not to like? He's had Bella Absug and Dick Van Dyke. He's delightful, he's the lovely, he's delirious, he's a darling, he's a doozy, he's deluxe, he's adorable, he's Dick Cavett. And he is, and he is, and he is, thank you. I don't know where we got this guy. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, Dick Cavett. I know. They thought I was fooling. <laughs> hey, and thanks. <laughs> Hi, this is Bob. Join the Peace Corps. Hope. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. I cried, and uh, all I could think of is 
I'm going to get a nasty letter from G. Gordon Liddy saying you didn't mention him in the song. <laughs> he was, he was I don't in think pre- you did. He was in a previous draft, actually. Anyway, was, the trick is was. to get on stage before the applause ends, and I think we did. We did it. We did it. Shall well, I sit here? Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Cavett. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you, you made it. You beat the traffic. Yeah. Boy, there's no traffic in this part of town because of the demonstrations going on downtown. On the night of the Christmas tree, isn't that... Oh, there are demonstrations. Wonderful, yeah. Oh, in New York. Plenty. Yeah. yeah. I, was, uh, yeah. I was not aware of that. They're demonstrating against you and me. That's what I think. Uh-huh. Funny stuff. Well, Dick, my first question is, how can we get this marvelous product? How can we what? The book. Oh. It's, is it out there? Are they selling it out there? Uh, I hope they're out there. You, you... I, I, my friend Calvin Trillin, whom I know you all read in The New Yorker, was a, a classmate of mine, but by one year. And every author will sympathize with his long-threatened book that will be called an Anthology of Authors' Atrocity Stories About Publishers. <laughs> Someone's written a book. <laughs> Your wife probably put you through the years, and then you got good reviews, and then, no. Well, the book, uh, there's so much in this book. Uh, it's like the last one. It's a collection of, if those of you, for those of you who don't know, Dick writes a column. Why do they call it a blog? I don't know. It's a column. Uh, it's an ugly word. Yeah. And column is, too, for the way some people write them, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, because it isn't in a column online, is it? Let's think of a better is, term. Isn't it? How about mini masterpiece? Oh, my goodness. Not even that mini. Wonderful. Okay, we'll stick with that. But it, uh, So it's a collection of columns, and they are, gosh, they're wonderful. So I thought, let me just start with the first one. I was, oh. uh, at, when I went through it, I thought, it's so beautiful. The first, the first two lines in the book, you criticize Humphrey Bogart for getting the Shakespearean quote wrong. <laughs> and I thought, well, that is just he, so like you. And I hope any, he can take that criticism. That didn't take any nerve. He's dead. He didn't. It, it's uh, <laughs> I think. What? I once saw Bogart playing. I was 12 years old, I think. Hollywood. In a cab with my father. In an MG convertible as we were stopped at a light here, was faced this way, stopped here. And there was Bogey. And I, I don't think I'd ever seen that huge a star before in my life. And I can still feel the impact. And a bit of trivia. On the hood, B-N-B in nice little ceramic cubes, and years later, I told Lauren Bacall this story on the show, and I said, I can't figure out why it said BNB. I knew one of them would be Bogart. And then I said, and the gods touched me, could it have been Betty and Bogey? And she said, you're so goddamn smart. <laughs> Did anyone hear that over there? <laughs> Well, you know, women talk that way. I would never... Part, part of what you... Um, you've said this a couple of times. You said this on Larry King when uh, Elizabeth Taylor died. 
and you said it on Charlie Rose about three years ago. You referred to the stars of that era, mm-hmm. whatever that era is before this era, uh, as redwoods. Yes, you know why I did that? Um, th- this will resemble a plug almost. I'm sorry, Eric, but... Um, <laughs> it depends for there's what? A, there's a don't, don't apologize. <laughs> if it's a good product, plug away. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you for... There's a... There are five box sets of the Cabot shows out on... And they're available on Amazon, but this isn't a plug. Uh, and they're, I think... I've forgotten how much they are. I think I get about $4 if you run out and buy one. But... Um, one of them is called Hollywood Greats, and I was on a radio show, and I said, look at this. I'm just looking at the box now. Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Fred Astaire, Groucho Marx, Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, Kirk Douglas, Frank Capra, and Marlon Brando and Robert Mitchum. And, then, and it occurred to me then, he said, or I said, who... who who are their counterparts today? It's as if these were redwoods, and now we have elm trees. Now, that's unforgivable because we have many great actors and stars, but there is something larger about those people somehow. I don't know what it is. We've got to figure it out. But we could spend the rest of the evening working yeah. on that. Do you think they, they, they didn't allow as much access? I mean, I, I was trying to figure out what it was myself. Yeah, I don't know. Betty Davis addressed this question on a show of mine and said, said um, you know, they say you shouldn't be, you should just be realistic and remind people of people they know on the screen. But she said, I like a little bigness, a little bigger than life. And because Betty Davis said it in that great voice and inflection, the audience applauded. You don't have to. <laughs> that was a night. That was a night. Oh, you've heard this. I'm sorry. But it was going so well. We had Betty Davis for 90 minutes. She had a lot of lifting done, temporary, and yellow glasses. Temporary. And she looked fab. Yeah, there was temporary lifting. I had it in Forrest Gump, but that's another story. And I suddenly I thought, I'm sitting here with Betty Davis. How did I get so lucky? Betty why did you do this tonight? You don't like this sort of thing. And she said, well, you're a gentleman, Richard. And I know that I'm in good hands. And I said, so how'd you lose your virginity, Betty? Right. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen that. And the whole point is it's on that box of DVDs called Hollywood Grace. Right, 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 right. Will you be signing those DVDs tonight? Oh, I don't know if there are any DVDs here tonight. They're not, but I'm but just wondering if, if you're going to be signing them. Well, if you, <laughs> if you, if you will signing, all maybe leave you your name. Maybe you a box from home. Everyone uh, write your name on a piece of paper. Well, okay. The, so, so, yes, the columns are, are delightful. And I guess I wanted to ask you, uh, this is sort of inside baseball since I'm a writer. How did it happen that the Times approached you and said, would you like to write a column? Because you've written comedy for all the greats. So you're, you're a writer, but you're, you're thought of as a comedy writer. You wrote uh, those two books with Christopher Porterfield, yeah. uh, sort of talking about your life. But the idea of writing a column for the Times today, I guess, what did it start, four years ago, five years ago? At least, yeah, yeah. Um, what, who came up with that idea? How did that happen? You know, I wish I could take credit for it or give somebody else credit for it. All I remember that, as we say in the trade, it came over the transom. 
um, somebody, somebody said, you've had a f- offers for this and that, and the Times thinks you might want to write a column. And I thought, oh, it scared me. Gave me a chill just now. And they want two a week. Mm. But in fact, my immediate reaction to that, I confess, was that's easy. I write fast. I always upset the older writers on the comedy shows, on the Tonight Show staffs that I was on, because I wrote my stuff and got it in before they were half finished. Yeah, we hate people like you. I learned not to do that. In a good way, yeah. (laughs) Please. I said, okay, I'll do it. And I wrote two that week, and I wrote two easily the next week. And then I wrote the first one for the third week, and I thought, that's it. I'm out. I've finished. (laughs) I have nothing more to say. I wrote Basil Rathbone's ghost story column, and uh, I couldn't think of anything else that had happened in my life. Now, hundreds of columns later, I'm still empty. I'm working on one about Mike Nichols. God, we've lost a lot of good people this year. The, uh, Now's not a good time to bring up that Dick Cheney's still alive. <laughs> <clears throat> so, I, so I won't. I was debating backstage I whether won't. I could get that past you tonight or here myself. You could, you could. I'm on HuffPost Live immortalized in a little squib from a show I did on there. David Frost had just died, and it says, Cavett asked about death of David Frost. Why is it never Dick Cheney? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and thank you, You know, you, his Eric. children are all here, by the way, so be careful. That's, we're oh. going to stop right there. That's, well, that's enough. I'm glad for them. Um, <laughs> where was we? People are going to wonder when you're telling the truth. So uh, <clears throat> I'm lying now. Um, <laughs> if... Uh, so, okay, so they, they said to you, um, would you like to write something? And then you said, what? No, now I only want to do it once a month? How did it? Because you uh, do it about what, every three weeks or something like that? It dribbled down to finally doing one every two weeks, one every two weeks. I don't know who these geniuses are who write a column every day, mostly in the sports world. But, uh, they're, you know, they're people who turn out a column a day. Um, there was a drunk on the New York Post who used to write columns on TV every day, uh, except the ones where it said, um, is ill. And you knew that he was face down on a sidewalk somewhere. But, um, yeah. Is it Murray Kempton? What? Just kidding. You boop. Who? I I never know when you're telling the truth. All right, so that's some other drunk. Okay, well, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, it matters no, not. I, I'm, I have no idea. Well, but, but so you were allowed to write it basically as often as you want, and that's, I'm assuming, because it's online. If it were in the paper, you'd, you'd need to stick to a, a schedule. I suppose so, yeah. And also, it's amazing how many people say, I never see your column. I heard, uh, I heard you on um, Mark Simone, and he said, you've got to read Dick's column. It's great. And I look through the paper, and I never find it. Do you know the six-letter word online? No. Sometimes. You, you, you uh, okay, so you can write it as often as you want. And whose idea was it to put it, to, to collect them and put them in books? Whose idea was uh, that? Someone at, the, uh, at Holt, my publisher, someone obviously very tasteful and astute. Um, Not in marketing. Well, well, they had a choice of printing me or uh, Bill Buckley's old columns, and I guess they decided to. Buckley. 
Buckley was a piece of work. Did I write over something he said? Uh, no. Oh. I wanted to ask you, actually, about Buckley. He's, he's on my list, which I think I left in the green room. Oh. Um, you had him on a number of times, did you not? Yes, well, you, I You did. were friends. I believe you swam together at one point. W- w- Eric, please. Sorry. <laughs> it's a, it, these are adults. Eric. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we swam together once, yes. Really? We were pulled through the water... Bill Buckley, his wonderful wife, Pat, my late wife and I and somebody I'd forgotten who had hold of my ankles were pulled through the water by a gift I'd been given of a thing that pulls you through the water uh, with a motor on it. And I thought... Was it, was it a boat? Well, <laughs> what, do you call, what do you call something that pulls you through the water, Dick? It, it was an engine with a, with a back thing on it. And it oh, well, with it, a back thing it, on back it. Thing. You should have said it that. It was made yeah. by the back thing company, in fact. And, and, and um, if you're going to pick apart this story... Right, I'm not right. Gonna... Well, we're just dying to know what it was. <laughs> I want one, really. I think it was called a putt-putt. All right. That sounds that, that, cl- that clears it up, doesn't it? It was a putt-putt. Let's say know. it was. It okay. was a putt-putt, sure. But my first encounter with Bill Buckley was sophomore English class at Yale... And Professor Cecil Y. Lang said, you might all want to go over to the law school tonight. The man I consider the most dangerous man in the world is lecturing there. And I went over to see the most dangerous man in the world. Who wouldn't? And, uh, and it was William F. Buckley, Jr. And uh, he was eccentric and strange. And who was it used to do him by going... Yeah. Um, Everybody. Fry, I think. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> he was very funny, and he had, he had phrases that I hoped I'd remember, like um, the mental spastics who read the nation. That was a good impression. And we fade to black. A lot of us remember the name. Yeah. Fade to black, first week of my show, nervous as hell, daytime, ABC, Bill Buckley, and I was afraid of him. But it was going all right until he said, I said something, I, I'm not familiar with that. And I, he said, you don't seem to be familiar with anything. <laughs> and I, and I, I just, I, you know, I naturally thought, you son of a bitch. Um, this is my first week of doing this show. I'm responsible for 90 minutes of live television. I'm worried, and you scared me, and I just feel awful. And the audience went, ooh, when he did that. Um, but I got him back. Want to hear that? I can make it quick. Unfortunately, we're out of time, Dick. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay. I hate that about live. It's the thing with live I TV. Know. A hard break. It's a hard break. We're done. You know, here you can't say we have a message when it gets rough and then regroup and Oh, come sure, back. I can. But, but uh, uh, well, anyway, and we're back. So, Dick, yeah. if you would just, uh, you had a Buckley anecdote burbling just beneath the surface. You were yeah, gonna, I forgot it. was going to burst. Oh, my gosh. On another show, he said, as Oscar Wilde said, hypocrisy is the compliment that vice pays to virtue. And, after, and the whole audience went, what? Yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, I went, what? But a woman had given me a book of French citation, and I had been reading it a week before, a, a thing worth, worthy of your miracle book. Days before, I had read that quote in it, 
And it was not Oscar Wilde, it was La Rochefoucauld. Uh, yes. I, I was going to say, was that La Rochefoucauld? Yeah, I know. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. That's amazing. When, you know, if you don't know who said the quote, nine times out of ten, it's La Rochefoucauld. It's true. I don't know how that is, but that's true. Right. He's right behind Shakespeare and just ahead of Dickens. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I got Buckley back on. Oh, oh. And I happened to bring it up. And I said, Bill, you know, <laughs> you're very astringent with your guests in many ways. You like things to be accurate. You challenge them on facts. Yes. Where is this going? And I said, well, it's going to you. Um, last Did you time say, you, you son of a bitch? No, no I, no, I saved that and told his wife to call him that. But right. So I led him around to it, and I said, uh, that quote you gave, um, I think I have it exact. Let's see, l'hypocrisie est un hommage que le vice rende la verti. Uh, how does that go in English? Um, <laughs> oh, yes, hypocrisy and so on. So I knew you'd want to know that, Bill, because I, I like to go on people's shows and not mislead the audience, and I knew you'd want to. And he said, thank you, I come here to be educated. <laughs> not and a very you, great response. And you were... Is that for him or and me? And I know that you became... N- n- no one... Uh, I, I, but you, you, you were friendly you were with, very with him much, for, yeah. for many he, years. He was a lot of fun and uh, very witty, of course, and uh, famous for when some woman, I, I, I used to know her names for some crazy reason, wrote in saying, cancel my subscription to your magazine, Mr. Buckley. Yes. And he wrote back, cancel your own damn subscription. Uh, Actually, and, now, now I'm going to correct you. Uh-oh. It wasn't Because I know the exact quote. He said, cancel your own GD description, except he spoke it out. Yeah, it was oh, even worse than damn. But Eric, it, that's but it, infinitely better. But it Thank wanted you. that syllable. As a comedy writer, you know, sometimes just a yeah, syllable. And better rhythm. It has better punch own and rhythm. GD, boom, yeah, right? better rhythm. It's so anyway. iambic and trochaic. In fact, I think... Gesundheit. Um, I think... I think they published, this is true, I think they published a, uh, a collection of his columns with that title. I'm not kidding. Maybe oh, there's somebody oh, here really? who works oh, for yeah, National yeah, Review yeah. Online, they can tell us. I don't know. Yeah. Um, speaking of William F. Buckley, I-, I wanted to ask you something that has nothing to do with him. I think we'd all applaud that is right at okay? this point. Yes. Uh, no, this is something, I-, I don't think I've ever asked you this before. Um, how was it... Dick, that you transitioned from, you were a writer, you did some stand-up. How did you get on TV? Who suggested it? Or were you fighting for that and it finally happened? Or did somebody come to you with the idea? I have no idea and I'd love to know. That, as you can see, the people who've been to those places that coach you on how to go on television and plug your book, <laughs> tell them to say, is a very good question. You can see them all say it once. Uh, I didn't know. I couldn't reconstruct it. I've told the story about gutsily taking a monologue to Jack Pyre and finding him coming from the men's room, and he hired me as a writer after a day or so. But how did I get into talk television? I never wanted it. 
I mean, I never dreamed of it. What year? What, was it 67, 68? When did you get the morning show? 68. 68 in your language. And or, your mother's language? Yeah. Yes, my yeah, mother's, mother's language. Lang- mother the Kraut, uh, a, term, a <laughs> person of German origin. And um, I, I did a pilot. Agent called and said, they've got this pilot idea. You have to fly out to California. And it's called The Star and the Story. And the idea was to get a movie star and tell his, her life in five half hours throughout the week. We got the great Van Johnson. He was delightful. Van, you were born in... And they ploddingly told Van Johnson's life for five half-hour episodes. Uh, It was sent to ABC, and they hated it. And I was told that someone in the room said, but let's not lose track of that kid who's the host. Uh, He might be the one we should try our daytime talk show idea with or on. Um, And that was moi. And I did it. The very first show, scared to death, 90 minutes, how am I going to get through this? How do you do this? Now, daytime, what, what time during the day? It was a, you know, I'm not actually sure. It's been referred to as my morning show and my midday show. Uh-huh. I think it was something like 11.30 to 1. Because it's such, I mean, I, I yeah. can't put myself back to remember what was on in those years. But today, of course, that it's completely different. Oh, that, yeah. you know, late night shows and, and daytime shows, different audiences. I think it was... Almost different than as well, but not maybe not as different if they thought of you for it. Because you're no Jerry Springer, sir. I'm <laughs> friends with Jerry Springer, and you're no Jerry Springer. <laughs> Who says? Yeah. I, actually, I never aspired to be Jerry Springer, but, uh, but he is, as people say on talk shows, when they're afraid they might say something bad, he's a dear friend of mine. Really? <laughs> And, and they never are. <laughs> I, can't, I actually can't think of anyone in the culture. There are a lot of people in the culture that I think are bad influences. I can't think of anyone worse than Jerry Springer. I just had to get that out. Mm. Mm. So that's why I always well, say, made me... when you're smiling. <laughs> um, but okay, so you did. Sure. how long did you so, do the daytime show for? Uh, it, 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 ABC never promoted it. Um, Protests came from people who accidentally discovered it in the middle of their day, <laughs> mostly housewives. Yeah. I used to see letters, copy to me, to ABC, why the hell don't you promote this show? I, I only heard, found it by accident. I hate to think of losing it. And the audience began to build without any help from the network, and uh, then uh, it ended. And then I was sitting in a theater in London... And a woman in the row behind me tapped my shoulder and said, congratulations. And I thought she meant for getting tickets to this hit play in London. <laughs> and she, I said, well, you mean something else? And she said, well, you're replacing Joey Bishop. Joey Bishop was the late night host then on ABC. And in fact, I was. No one had been polite enough to tell me. <laughs> And obviously, if it hadn't been for that woman, I never would have done it. And, <laughs> and what happened to Joey? 
Joey, uh, as someone, Woody other, Allen... Other than the Dean Martin roast that he used to do. Yeah. I don't remember what happened to him. He was a very good comic, marvelous stand-up comic, with a slow face and a fast mind. Interesting combination. And not a very nice man. Uh, in fact, two writers... I worked for him for a week in the awkward interval between Jack Parr and Johnny Carson when... Everybody in show business hosted the Tonight Show for There's a, a week. There's a column or two about weeks. that in yeah. your book, right? It was called I called it the Stock Company period, where everybody from Mort Saul to Groucho to one of the Gabors to Donald O'Connor hosted the Tonight Show. Fat Jack Leonard, everybody. Fat Jack um, Leonard. Oh yes. How many people here remember Fat Jack Leonard? I'm just checking. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> then I, I, I feel free to tell this. Yes. I thought he was hilarious. He was a lovely man. He never came to the show without bringing cufflinks or tie clips or presents for people on the staff. And just a nice guy, a so-called insult comedian or whatever. Um, but he was so nice. And he had certain stock lines, and I wanted to hear them every time, and he did them every time. One of them was, why don't you put your glasses on backwards and walk into yourself? And... Uh, <laughs> I didn't think I was going to get a, a, a fat Jackie you're, you're Leonard impression tonight you? or at any point in the rest of my life. So that's thank you, you for don't, that. You haven't learned to aim high. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. All things are possible. But um, another time, yeah. well, so I, I thought, uh, uh, how do I write for him? He's a guest host for a week. And Telstar, Telstar, what a huge word that was back then. The first big satellite had gone up that day. And I gave him a line I thought he probably wouldn't use. And at the end of his monologue, I said, you might want to close with this line. Uh, There's going to be a party after the show, and then we're going to all go up on the roof and shoot down Telstar. <laughs> this killed the audience. I don't know why. And the only other thing I can remember giving him was, why don't I give him a fresh version of some of his stock lines? And I gave him, why don't you walk into a parking meter and violate yourself? That's yours? That's yours. But That's his. his. Now. That's excellent. <laughs> Except today, they don't, know, they don't have that, uh, the thing that says... Vi- Violation, that I know, but anymore. some old folks laugh. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, okay, and I, I want to ask you also, you, you have a tremendous theater background. You've always been interested. I'm, I'm guessing there are a lot of people here who, who know that and a lot of people here who have no idea about that. I mean, you did Rocky Horror. You've done a few things, but... You're, you're a man of the theater, and you have been since Yale, pretty much, no? Well, actually, since Nebraska. Wow. By some anomaly. You know, Nebraska's not a time, by the way. Oh. You really... <clears throat> well, let that me I know you. of, that I know yeah. of. Yeah. Why don't you walk into a parking lot? Uh, in Nebraska, in eighth grade, I had Lula B. Moore's... Lula B. Moore was a lovely, ancient... Vierge, who taught um, uh, Miss Moore, uh, acting. And there was the Drama 2 special class. And one day, I was called out of class to the principal's office because out of nowhere, suddenly, an equity summer theater in a barn like the oldest summer stock theater, huge dairy barn, opened and lasted for several seasons. New York actors got off the train in Nebraska and couldn't figure out what had happened to them. 
because <laughs> they couldn't see any tall buildings and they could see the sky forever. And, and they wanted a young man who might be able to do an English accent. And Miss Moore had discovered that I could. And I starred with a company of brilliant actors in The Winslow Boy. Uh-huh. How old were you? I was... Uh, this was three years ago. Fourteen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you were, I think I remember this. You were like 14. Yeah, I was. I was, uh, I, I was whatever you are in junior high is what I was, yeah. And... Um, There's a good joke there. I just I didn't never, come up with it. I, well, whatever you are in junior high. I think Ronnie is, is 14 in the play. Mm-hmm. But I remember standing in the wings opening night and I was the first one to enter alone. And I thought, I can't do this. Something, some supernatural power has got to be invoked to get me through this evening. I have every third line in this play. Uh, but I did get through it. I loved doing it. And uh, that was my first acting. Then I did plays at Yale. And then in New York... Wait, wait, I was did you... Before that... Did you ever have the desire to act? Was this just something they sprang on you? I, 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 I took the drama class in junior high thinking I might want to be an actor, probably in Lincoln for the rest of my life in the Hayloft Summer Theater. Uh, because I never dreamed of going... I dreamed of going east, but I never thought it was, could be a reality. And when a family friend... My parents have all been school teachers uh, from Omaha, had had a fellowship to Yale, said Dick should apply to Yale. This is his senior year. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I probably didn't know what apply to Yale meant. But I did. And uh, the envelope came, and I thought, well, I know the first words will be we regret. It was a summer day. I was home alone, opened the thing, Congratulations, you will be in the class of 1958. And I remember it was, I don't know if epiphany is the right word, but Eric will tell you. Um, I, I thought... <clears throat> it's, it's not, but go ahead. They won't know the difference. Go ahead. <laughs> they won't know, right? This spells the rest of my life in some way. Had it said we regret... Yes. You would have looked silly talking to an empty chair... Tonight. I can look silly right now, even though you're here. <laughs> um, you, <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't mention this er- earlier, but we met uh, the day that I graduated from Yale. I was the class day speaker, and the celebrity speaker was Dick Cavett. Little Dickie Cavett. And from you were uh, 48 years old at the time. Good God. And uh, the next year, you turned 49. If you turned 49. <laughs> do you remember that? You remember that? Yes, and if it's you turn just 49, amazing. you get 94. Yeah, right, right. But uh, you... <laughs> did you do... But you did... You, when you were at Yale, you did, uh, you did theater, did you not? Or was that... I, I did theater, as it's theater? sometimes called in the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. That always drove me crazy when people said theater. Um, yeah, I, I did. A- and, but freshman year, I didn't. My parents reminded me that when I got on the train, the Challenger, I think it was, in Lincoln's railway station the night I left home for Yale, 
that I had said, what if I can't do the work? And my dad said, you'll be all right. But I didn't know that he knew that. Um, and so, freshman year, I was scared orgerless. I just didn't think that I could... Orgerless? Don't, don't let it pass. O-R-D-U-R-E-less. <laughs> I, I was. That's a great uh, I, I, tra- word. I, I was trying to be genteel. Um, <clears throat> you, you were quite genteel. Nobody knows but, what you meant by I, that. But I thought, <laughs> I just, uh, I was so scared that, to the hatred it instilled in my roommates, if a philosophy paper was assigned freshman year, on, can we isolate a given element in knowledge? whatever the hell that means. I went home and wrote that paper without even going to the dining hall for lunch and typed it clean and paper clipped it and put it in my drawer so it would be ready eight days later when it was due. And that's how I was freshman year. I was afraid I'd flunk out. But as luck would have it, my Bronxville anti-Semitic roommate... uh, flunked out for me and uh, and uh, but I, I didn't dare do a play because I would talk to guys who were in plays and they'd say God we were up till 4am with a lighting rehearsal and I got classes at 8 and oh but after that I made the dean's list that year and I never did again but I was in a lot of shows <laughs> Cyrano The Great Gatsby The Crucible God knows what all. Did you, did you know before you went to Yale that you wanted to be in show business? Yeah. I didn't want to be in anything else. My poor father, fearful of my ever, not, ever making a dollar, and he was obsessed with money, as were almost all his contemporary teacher friends who had been through the Depression. He taught school. I remember his telling me he got the job desperate for a job, teaching English in Comstock, Nebraska. I'm sure a lot of you have been there. Um, Hold your applause. For $600 a year. Mm. It raised to 700 the next year. And ever and anon, he would say, your mother and I would have to decide whether we could spend a dime for a movie or we should buy bread or lettuce or something with it. So he was always, oh. So he had said, you know where they got a great dental school at the University of Nebraska, and they have a pretty good law school, and you know, you got to think about, you know, this show business stuff, it's pretty dicey. But I knew I was never going to be a dentist. (laughs) I love dentists, I don't mean... But I just knew that Yale... I knew from talking this benefactor, this teacher, Frank Rice, who got me into Yale, uh, got me to apply, and I got in, had said, you know, the great thing about New Haven is not the weather, (laughs) but the Schubert Theater. What's that? It's what's called a tryout theater. All the Broadway shows on their way to New York start at the Schubert, almost all, some in Boston, then the Schubert. And for the next four years, I saw everybody in the golden age, what I think of as the last of the golden age of American theater. 
the Lunts and Noel Coward and Re Frederick March and uh, just every Helen Hayes and uh, Judith Anderson, all these legends of my life from Theater Arts Magazine. And there I was looking at them with nothing but air between me and them. And I went backstage frequently and walked into their dressing rooms. Okay, tell, nah, hold on a second. <laughs> now hold on right there. Um, you, have, uh, you have a knack, a thing for, for being backstage. So if anybody's ever wondering where you are, if they can't find you, you're backstage someplace, <laughs> typically, backstage. right? And, uh, yeah, look in, in Rex fact, Harrison's dressing room. He's probably in there. <laughs> I was. Uh, when did that start and what gave you the, the sense, the chutzpah, to think that you could get backstage? Because, you know, I, I was a, mm -hmm. a student at Yale and I wasn't wandering around backstage at the Schubert. I, I don't know. How did, what put that idea into your head? I don't know that it was an uh, idea. Uh, it seemed more like a compulsion I just thought, here I go, backstage. <laughs> uh, you, I, you just couldn't help yourself. No, the no my legs the heart, were taking me there. And, it, it and just thought, the heart wants what it wants, right? You just yeah, went, right. Yeah. A little voice was saying, sure, Who you're not going to walk into Judy Holliday's dressing room, are you? Oops, here's her door. Uh, <laughs> and there I was, and uh, hello, and we talked. I walked into Judy... Garland's dressing room at the Palace in New York while I was at Yale. You just walked into it? Well, I went backstage to see if I could get in, and I said to the guy, I'm a friend of Judy's, and he said, okay. And, um, That's uh, different. And if you're backstage and there's a backstage doorman, say, how's it going, Pop? He's, he's always called Pop, and so he, he thinks you're supposed to be there. And then I, I went down a little hall, and it was dark. This is the Radio City Music Hall. No, it wasn't. It was the Palace, better, the Palace Theater in the lyric of one of her songs. And a figure in a house coat was walking ahead of me. And it was a little broader than I thought Judy Garland was, so I didn't think it was Judy Garland. But it was. And I followed her into her dressing room. <laughs> And she wheeled about, and Margaret Whiting, the singer, was in there. And um, her face was kind of a pudding. She Margaret Whiting's or Judy's? Huh? Margaret Whiting's or Judy's? No, Judy, Miss Judy. She had taken all her splendid makeup off, and she had just come... I was probably the only straight man in her audience at the palace that night. Um, and you're not that straight. <laughs> Let's be honest. It's a New York crowd. It's, um... Okay, well, this is the night it comes out. Right, right. But she, I spoke to her, and she kept trying to figure out who I was, and my... <laughs> and I will admit that my voice has always been distinctive, even when I was a kid. It, I, I have this feeling at puberty it went up, because <laughs> I had always had a low voice, and if I talked from the back of a room that other people were talking in, everybody turned around when I said something, and it was strange for me. So my voice seemed to get me in. People seemed to be intrigued by it. But at one point, I had stayed just a touch too long, perhaps, and she said, what is this, an interview? <laughs> the bitch. <laughs> yes. 
Exactly. And um, I, I we... excused myself. <laughs> and years later yes. on television, I was able to say, I don't know anything else to say about my next guest except Miss Judy Garland. And bang, and she came out. You didn't remind her of this incident. I, I should have. I wonder if I did. I don't know. Well, you reminded all the other greats of when you'd met them years earlier. I often did, yeah. But it, it, this sounds strange. But if you want to know where to meet famous people when you were born in, when I was, um, and remember World War II, Lincoln, Nebraska was the place to be. <laughs> I met Basil Rathbone, Bob Hope, Spike Jones, Charles Lawton, Charles Boyer, Cedric Hardwick, Agnes Moorhead, Dane Clark, uh, Henry Fonda all came to do shows in Lincoln. But I couldn't believe that Bob Hope was going to be in Lincoln. And the ad said Bob Hope. And I quickly looked for that dreadful line, a film, uh, and, and found not a film, I thought, but I couldn't remember. My friend Lyle Burke and I went. We got good seats. And... Five vaudeville acts came on, and the curtain went down. And I didn't know from intermission. We thought it was over. <laughs> Luckily, we came back, and the voice said, And now the star of our show, Bob Hope. And Bob Hope glided <laughs> onto the stage. And Lyle said, my God, there he is. And I, I just got the chills now. Ran around backstage. Hope came down the stairs at the end. I said, fine show, Bob. He said, hey, thanks, son. And I told all my friends the next day about chatting with Bob Hope the night before. <laughs> <laughs> and years later, on a... Kenny of this, I think it was my days. I run around to look in the wings to see if Bob Hope actually showed up because he was supposed to be my next guest. And there he was. And he came on to thanks for the memory, of course. I told him this story. And I said, fine show, Bob. And he said, thanks, son. He said, hey, was that you? <laughs> <laughs> what a man. In your, in your book, uh, it's, uh, it's a collection of, I would say, spectacular celebrity anecdotes and stories with yeah. childhood stories, which are mm -hmm. almost all of them, I think all of them, there's a, there's a beautiful innocence to them. Uh, most people don't know that side of you. You're very yeah. sweet, innocent. But when you're not being nasty or putting people down, you're very sweet. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's that kind of innocence. I thought. <laughs> but do you ever do you ever think about that? Do you feel that American life is well, that American life is different? And if so, why? What what was it about that time? Because those those columns, and I know all these people will read yeah. them because they're going to buy the book and get you to sign it later. Obviously, that's why they're here. Right. But uh, don't run out now. But don't, don't leave now. Um, but honestly, there's, there's, a, there's a beautiful innocence in them. What do you there, think yeah. of that? There's also guilt, isn't there? Uh, it, it was a different time. I don't know that it was a better time, except we didn't have a lot of the horrors that we have now, it seemed. But, yeah, I, I, I grew up in a cliched 
neighborhood street with elm trees and people had dogs and everybody did, it seemed, and you left your house open when you went on vacation for two weeks and neighbors came in and watered the plants and you didn't lock up. And Surely that's a different world. Um, I, I don't know why it's so different now. But there's also guilt in the fact that I really realize there are two pieces in the book in which I commit crimes that were punishable had it I Look, not that guy up. needed killing. I read the story. <laughs> and you know what? Let it go. We're better off without him. You promise not to bring that well, up. Well, they're going to read it in the book anyway. But well, the, uh, She didn't suffer. <laughs> yeah, well, just, you know, just leave it at that. Anything you say, somebody believes just, it. Just leave it at that. Okay, Careful. Okay, let that pass. Careful. Um, well, okay, here's a question that uh, three years ago Charlie Rose asked of you. I'm typically not a fan of his way of, of questioning. Uh, he usually says things like, is what? Mm-hmm. But he asked you a question um, uh, three years ago when you came out with your last... <laughs> ring, ring any bells? When you came out with your, your last collection uh, about how, how TV has changed and what was it... Well, he asked two questions. I think I've asked you the first question another time. Would you, would you... Do you ever think now that you'd like to do a show, something like the show that, that you did and that we, we've all admired yeah. you... On. Does that yeah. go through your head? And what's different about TV today? Um, what, what was it? I mean, so many people rave about your show. Your show was was unique. Notice I didn't modify unique. You can't modify. Thank it. you for um, that. But but um, so many people say there, there was nothing like your show, and I and I think that's true. But the question is, uh, part of that has to do with you. There's not another you, and you bring a, a number of gifts, but. But there was something, it seems to me, about TV then, perhaps, that can't be duplicated now. Or, or would you agree with that? Do you think that things are uh, well, just, uh, possible? <clears throat> Disassembling it, uh, it, it's different now. Late-night talk shows have evolved <laughs> somehow. And In fact, by the way, there was an article in The New Yorker, must be a year and a half ago now, that I discovered by sheer shock and accident, Dick Cavett and Late Night Television, a piece that was not the title, that was the subtitle. And I learned in that article about how it's changed that Late Night Talk, as distinct from when it was Jack Parr and Johnny Carson, is not a cash cow anymore. It may be on the way out before too long. Uh, and that the stunning fact was that because there were so few things in those days, we were just out of the CBS, NBC, ABC, that was your choice, three channels time. I had, in the, in the time that I was canceled finally and for the last time by ABC, more viewers than Letterman or Leno or anybody else could have in recent years, because it's television, is just, you can see anything you want. That's a startling fact to me. Um, well, the and then there's the other thing which people say to me, you ever notice nobody gets more than seven minutes now on a talk show? 
and I used to do 90 minutes and find it much easier than doing seven minutes. Um, I didn't always do 90 minutes, obviously, but all, all those shows where I had one guest were a lark. I loved it. It could loosen the guest up if they were nervous and then see them get better and then see them get more comfortable and then have them say afterwards, how you got me to talk about that one thing I'll never know. Uh, uh, you made me too comfortable. But uh, I don't, do, do you watch TV for different reasons now? I, I, I don't know. I don't watch anything on television regularly. I mean, religiously. I, 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 since I know all the talk show people, I watch them frequently. But uh, Well, the breadth of guests that you had, obviously, uh, in that song earlier, I had to go through, in order to get all those rhymes, I had to yeah. go through every one of your guests. And I couldn't get over the breadth. I mean, from Evil Knievel to William F. Buckley and Simon Wiesenthal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it on and on. I was marveling and marveling and marveling at how you would go from showbiz personality to um, some kind of, um, you know, cultural genius. It, 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 Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to me that we have folks like that, except for Charlie Rose. But Charlie Rose... D- it doesn't do comedy or shtick. I mean, it's very serious. Right. Yeah. And you did both. And I think that's what I love most about your show and about you is that you've got that breadth yeah. of interest. I mean, that you're as happy uh, talking to Groucho about nothing or anything mm-hmm. as talking to somebody really serious. That seems to me have, to have gone out of TV. Well, like you, is it as you? Like you, I'm... <laughs> Stunned at my guest list when I look back at it. My God, Daniel Ellsberg. I'd forgotten yeah. I had him. Yeah. The murderer, uh, Captain Jeffrey McDonald. I thought you meant Norman Miller. The, uh, no, no. no. Uh, Is the, he here? No. Check carefully. The Mafia Don, Colombo. Oh, I didn't know you had him. Yeah. Well, oh, that's for exactly minutes. the rhyme I was looking for. That's I can't that. believe it. Really? What would you rhyme with Colombo? Don't Cousteau. be a Dumbo. Cousteau, Marcel Marceau. Oh, that was a good triple rhyme. Dang. I'm furious that I and missed did you, that. Did you not have Jacques-Yves Cousteau in your lyric? I did, yeah. Here's a thing for language people only, and the rest will be bored stiff by it. He told me on a show about an island they had discovered in the Caribbean, and he said, watch for it, here it comes, it was a whale graveyard. They'd never seen anything like it. One whole side of this island. And he said, the littoral is literally littered with their bones. Now, wait a minute, because we're not going to have transcripts of this. So say that the, the L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L. Littoral. The littoral. Yeah, the littoral. Is literally littered with their bones. He had no idea that he had said anything remarkable. That's the funniest part. That's the best thing. Holy cow. God, I just, I love that. I just, I don't know And you did have Marcel Marceau on. Obviously, it was a talk show, so he didn't mime his way through it. No, no. I did have him on, but I'm keeping it quiet. My wife just went, oh, no. That's very encouraging. But how does does that work? I mean, the fact that they gave you the freedom... uh, 
to talk to people who were, I don't remember, when was your ABC show on? That wasn't late, late night, was it? Or it was, actually. It was, it was, it was 11 or 11.30 opposite Carson. Strangely enough, The Tonight Show, when I first heard of it and watched Jack Parr on it, started at 11.15. Isn't that a forgotten fact? Jack so hated that 15 minutes because it was only carried by half of the affiliates. So he blew his monologue on half the country. He protested, and finally they dropped it and started at 11.30. But yeah, uh, I did 11.30 to 1, the traditional one, up opposite Johnny, and at another point, among Johnny, myself, and Merv Griffin. So you could switch all around and see different types of shows. But when I look at that guest list, I've forgotten so many. This is kind of interesting. Well, why don't you be the judge? I was sitting there beside Johnny Carson. One of the times I was canceled, and Johnny would always, perhaps as a fellow Nebraska, have me on <laughs> after a canceling. Want to come on Monday, Richard? Yeah. Um, and That's he would, true. He would have you, right? Yeah, and I would go on the Tonight Show. He brought me out first, even though he had other illustrious guests. And he was so easy with me that his staff would say, I wish you were on every week. He's a different man when you're on. Somebody pointed out Johnny only leans back in the back of his chair when Cavett is on. We had a great friendship. And, but he would say, uh, if this next one doesn't work, it's Armed Forces Radio for Richard. No. <laughs> <laughs> he would, <clears throat> but you really were friends. I mean, that's, yeah. it's remarkable. It's one thing to meet the greats, but to be friends with Johnny Carson, of all the opaque personalities, yeah, he, he was not somebody friends. that made a lot of friends, or are we getting that wrong? No, Johnny was as awkward socially as almost... Richard the, Nixon. The, no. <laughs> no. No. Nixon took the prize for that and criminality. But... Um, are you going to applaud? <laughs> There's a lot of Nixon... you got to be careful. A lot, a lot of, of Nixon fans, fans here. you got to be careful yeah, what you but, say. But John, well, well, what were we talking about? Johnny said one night waving the dock to bring the band down a little during a commercial break because he liked them to play loud so he wouldn't have to talk to the guests during the breaks. Not a bad idea, by the way. You blow stuff that way. Uh, Richard, do you ever forget who you had on? And I said, this is during the 12.30 long break so we could talk. Uh, well, sure, there are so many. And he said, no, no, I mean that night. And he was not literally, but figuratively sweating a little. And I saw that he was worried. And I said, well, uh, I suppose. And he said, well, the reason I asked, I went home the other night. He had an Irish doorman he had told me about. And he said, my doorman said, uh, so who do you have on the show tonight, Mr. Carson? And I said, well, we had the usual four. We had them. <laughs> Jesus. And he said, I couldn't think of any of the four guests. It was an hour earlier. And I had to go upstairs. I had a drink. I finally came up with J.P. Morgan was one of the guests. <laughs> but he was worried. He drank a lot when I worked with him. He had a wife on the ledge now and then. He had um, lots of tension, like a wire about to snap. And he'd be in his dressing room when I took the material down for that night in his underwear shirt, saying these things are killing me, 
which they did, his Paul Malls, if we want to thank a tobacco company, and um, pull himself together, come into the wings, hated to have to say to the whole of the guests beforehand. I knew to always ask him about a card slide or something which relaxed him. He'd, um, and then he'd stand there, stamp out the cigarette, band played, and he'd go out and be the happiest he ever was for, in the latter years, one hour a day, formerly 90 minutes. He told me once, Richard, the biggest mistake I ever made was cutting back to an hour. He realized how much he hated it. That was his decision. Yeah, he demanded that, and then he was sorry. And four days a week. But, uh, oh, I made him feel better. I wanted to. And I had something, luckily, to do it with. I said, oh, God, yes, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. I said, um, I came home one night from one of my one-person shows, and people in the apartment said, uh, there was a party or something, and they said, hey, Dick, how'd the show go? And I said, fine. They said, who was it? And I said, my God, they sat right there. Um, was, it, was it somebody I mentioned earlier? It was an obscure names, so gets me off the hook a little. Lucille Ball. Oh. Well, no wonder. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I could not bring it into consciousness, but it started the evolving of my theory that I think most actors know and would understand. It's not you out there. You're never you completely, even in a chat show. Uh, and the you that does the show stays at the theater. You go home. When you come back, you put that mask on again, and you do it. And the one that went home can't be expected to remember it. <laughs> Very odd. But Are like, you you now? Um, I know, these people don't, a lot of these people don't know me, but I'm much taller when I go home. <laughs> yeah, four or five you, inches at How least. do you do that? I have no yeah. idea. I have no My. idea. God, man. It's extraordinary. That's a side of you I hadn't seen. Right. I've seen right. A, the tall side. Seen well, a lot we're, of... we're um, it's, it's so frustrating talking to you because all I can think of is that it has to come to an end. You are. Oh, I'm just as getting started. Good. I, <laughs> you are as good. Um... Oh, yes. I'm sorry, Eric. No, please. You, you were doing so well. Could I tell one story about a great comedian? And I'm a fr- I've always thought everybody must know it. Whenever I write a column or do anything, people say, Groucho Marx, tell us about Groucho Marx. Tell more about Groucho Marx. And I've written a lot about Groucho. And I can never quite believe that I met not only Stan Laurel for an afternoon, and there's a, cop- a piece about that in the book that made people cry. Have you got a book out? And- <laughs> wow. <laughs> you really didn't know how to hurt a guy. Um, and this is Groucho and the Seance. It's fun to tell. Does, do some people know what I'm about to say? Somebody will, yeah. But it's so good. It's, it's a like good Jackie Leonard. Uh, it's, it's better. <laughs> the boys were in vaudeville, the brothers, the four brothers. And they were huge stars, making 2000 a week in the Depression. And my father was making 80 cents a day or something. Um, and so people wanted to meet them, and people would come backstage. And a woman came back and said, Mr. Marks, 
um, are you interested in the supernatural by, for any reason? He said, well, I am, in fact. Yeah, I've been reading uh, about Dr. Ryan and some other things. He said, well, um, there's going to be a seance here in Minneapolis, perhaps, vaudeville tour. Uh, here's the address, but I don't know quite how to say He said, I know what you're going to say. You know, I'm an idiot on stage, but I can be respectful and be a normal person. And no one would know him because the mustache was painted on then, so nobody knew him. But he went. It was in a huge home, and there were black drapes and one or two candles, and the devoted and the believers were sitting out front reverently, and I think her name was Anna Eva Fay. If not, that was a famous seance trance medium. And she looked, he said, like Margaret Dumont in the Groucho in the Marx Brothers movie, in her gown. And she stood and said, at a certain point of incantation, I am in touch with the other world. I am in touch with the other world. Does anyone, does anyone have a question? And a familiar voice said, what is the capital of North Dakota? Well, he, he said I escaped with my life. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> we, oh well. uh, we have to have time for you to sign all the books that these fine people are going to purchase any minute. Oh, we wouldn't but want before, to But before we do that, let me ask a final question. Shoot. What's capital of North Dakota? No, not that question. I've never wanted to know. Uh, Somebody said Bismarck. Yeah, somebody was right. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, you do a lot of things now. You write this column. I I know that you're busy. We don't see enough of you, uh, those of us... uh, who are here, who know your work. It's just a joy to see you out there. You're as wonderful a guest as you are a host, which is saying tons. And mm-hmm. I think the question would be, and in fact is, what would you like to do? You, you, you have, you're cursed with so many talents, you could do almost everything. Most people here don't know you were a champion gymnast. Uh, that's true. So State, you've, yeah, you've yeah. got a few, other than, you know, the pommel horse, what would you like to do? Uh, what are the sorts of things you'd like to write? Would you like to write a play? Would you like to be in a play? I'm just curious. Do you, do you, do you think about this or you just let it ride and you take yeah, what comes up? I've actually thought of calling you at times and saying, what should I do <laughs> that I haven't done? Because you're a, and I promised God I would never use this word, awesome writer. How do we get the young I'm sorry, folks? I'm sorry, from... I didn't catch that. What? <laughs> what? I wish I, I can't believe what was what? Um, thank you, Dick. And That's some of okay. my my products are also available out there. But I uh, no, I'm. A, <laughs> Should we? <laughs> I am a writer, but I have no idea what that uh, has to do with w- what I, I would think you ought to be doing. But I think you're a guy who seems to know what he wants to do, and you do phenomenal things, and you do them so well. Oh, that's and, a lie, but go uh, ahead. Thank and you. you're not bad looking. 
I tried to time that for you. when his mouth was full of water. <laughs> That's right. Let me give you a, a, a thing that will make it worth coming tonight. <laughs> I, da- I dare you. Oh, I don't think you can do it. Go ahead. I did a show Let's on see. PBS recently called Dick Cavett's Watergate. Did anyone yes. catch that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this sounds immodest, but it's one of the best things I've ever been connected with. It's a brilliant hour about the great unindicted co-conspirator and criminal streak president, Richard Milhouse Nixon, and his criminal vice president. And as Bob Woodward, uh, Carl Bernstein says on the show, the day after the landslide election, the Nixon tape, which should be, now we're back and we've got this great landslide and we can do wonderful things for the country. It's how can we screw this son of a bitch who didn't promise and we'll ruin this guy's auto business. Tom, put Tom on that. And, you know, so, uh, and, and, and this foul-mouthed, wretched personality president who sprang from the womb screaming, I want to be president, uh, and then blew it, um, is, is in this thing. In a, somebody pointed out, guy who knew my tapes called and said, do you realize how much Watergate you've got? You had all of the baddies on the show. Two people, not myself, put together this wonderful hour. Some people have watched it two or three times. So go home, not in this sentence, and Dick Cavett's Watergate, you will find it, and you will really love it. And actually, uh, it is terrific, but it is true that... Uh somebody is cutting together a number of shows like that. Is, is that correct? Dick Cavett's... Some other Dick Cavett Watergates. Yeah, uh, the, 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 uh, Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, Ali I write about yeah. in the book. Was, yeah. For a time, I thought he must be my best friend in the world. And did we, a lot we've of all shows thought that, haven't we? Yeah. That's just the kind of guy he was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he stayed in my house in Montauk one night. And it was kind of an accident. We were doing it documentary out there and I went to get his wife from the motel they were checked into and bring her over to stay at the house so I left him alone in it my late wife called phones picked up and she here and she says darling and he says this ain't darling She said, may I ask? And he said, it's the only three-time heavyweight champion of the world, and I'm lying in your bed, and I'm watching your TV. (laughs) Oh, God. And she said, well, Mr. Ali, knowing, (laughs) I will put a plaque on that bed, which is more than she ever did for me. (laughs) Oh, gosh. God damn it, we've got to stop. Listen, um... You're going to be, we're, going to, we're going to sneak backstage while they set okay. up the book signing table. There's, uh, if you buy a book, there'll be a line snaking uh, back to Broadway and right there and, and up here. And you get to shake the hand of the man who slept in the same bed as Muhammad Ali. And any questions? Unfortunately not. We've already gone uh, oh, over no. time. But, um, who has but since gr- you were so obnoxious about it, we'll take your question. Uh, my first impression of Oscar Levant 
really was that he was dead by the time I did talk shows. <laughs> and since I'd already had a man die while I was taping the show in front of the audience, I thought bringing Oscar back would be too much. But I met him backstage on the old Par Tonight show the night he said, I just saw a Frank Sinatra movie that was so bad I went out and made a citizen's arrest of the cashier. That sounds just like Oscar Levant. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, in all seriousness, we're out of time. It kills me. I think I'd like to get a TV show just so I could have you on all the time and we could continue this conversation. This, as far as I'm concerned, has been a delight. Thank you, Dick. Um, thank you. Nothing to say. See you, Swell. Hey, man. These are your people. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>